Welcome to the podcast for St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School Sherman Center that's in Random Lake, Wisconsin, north of Milwaukee and south of Sheboygan. We're pleased to share with you recent sermons and Bible classes from our congregation. We welcome you to join us for Divine Service Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We have Bible classes currently offered at 8.15 a.m. on Sunday. Join us to receive the Lord's Word and His gifts. So let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here today to uh, listen to your Son as he is given to us through your evangelist, St. John. We ask that uh, we would be drawn into the life of the church through uh, the witness of John, that we would see Jesus as our sole source uh, of faith, life, living water, uh, and the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we, had, we ended with a question. I said I'd answer it. Um, regards to John chapter 4, and namely, you know, this is the woman at the well. A woman, she, Jesus needs water. Um, and so he goes to some, he, and he, rather than go around Samaria, he goes through Samaria. He's at the well. It's about sixth hour, which is noon. And it depends on which, the, the, I think it is noon here. John numbers it according to um, sunrise. All right. Sometimes there's numberings different, but usually it's this way. So sunrise is roughly 6 a.m., give or take, right? And so the sixth hour is about noon. So it's high noon, if you like, right? Uh, so Jesus was crucified in the, at the ninth hour, which is roughly 3 p.m. Yeah. All right. So anyway, uh, the woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And there's a, this is a helpful note that we'll actually need later on today. For the, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So right now, water is the, the point of the story, but then food's going to come back here in a little bit. All right. And actually, I think there's a parallel in the way that Jesus handles both. The Samaritan woman said to him, uh, how is it that you are a Jew? Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Remember, Jews, very narrowly defined, are those who, who um, are from Judea. You hear Jew and Judea. Right? And that name didn't really come along until after the Babylonian captivity. And it's a, in some, place, some scriptures, it's retroactively applied. But it's usually, you're the Hebrews or you're the Israelites, right, in the Old Testament. But Jews is the New Testament. And they seem to have accepted it as a, like, not a derogatory term. Um, even though it's kind of an indictment because you're saying, like, the people of Israel are now just the people in Judea. Basically two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. That's it. And the rest of the tribes are dispersed. But that will come up again here in a minute, too. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was, or who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So I, a friend of mine describes this kind of conversation. Um, you're both playing in the same sandbox, but you're not playing with each other. Parallel playing, I think is what they call it. So you're there, and you're like, our kids are playing, but they're not actually interacting with one another. And he, Jesus is, but she's talking about physical water, and then he goes right away and is talking about this living water, this, this Old Testament reference. All right. And then, uh, 
she doesn't, she doesn't seem to quite be with him yet. So the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us uh, the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. All right. Then Jesus said, Everyone, sorry, scroll there. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up or overflowing up to eternal life. All right, so now he, he bridges that gap for her. Okay, we were talking about regular water, but I'm talking about a different kind of water entirely. Because living water could just refer to a, we talked about this, like a river or a spring. You know, water that moves is considered living water uh, rather than like stagnant. That's our term, right? Or stale water. This is weird. Can you have stale water? You know it does. It flattens out, doesn't it? It comes out of the tap. It, it has a little, maybe it just has a little bit of bubble in it. Is that what it is? And then it just kind of, as it settles, I think it's actually the minerals settle out of it, maybe. I don't know. When I put my rainwater in gallon jugs, that's probably stale water after I cover it. I'm it up for Does it? six months. I don't know. I don't know. Rainwater's good, though. It's still good for the plants. Yeah, it is good. Collect it. Um, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So he made the connection. Did she make it? Not quite yet, right? She's still thinking, oh, you're talking about like physical water, but physical water that will never run dry and then I'll never be thirsty again, which is kind of spiritually, but not, not really where Jesus is going. And then this was the problem that we, I was trying to address last week and the week before. Um, and this is really the nature of the question at the end of class. Because uh, then Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here, which seems to be... What do you want to say? A like Jesus goes off on a tangent, right? Now maybe he's referring to that you need like a man to draw this water out of the well. I guess maybe something like that. But but it does seem that he's moving off on a tangent, and I'm going to try to explain why that's not true. The woman answered him, "I have no husband." Jesus said to her, "You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband." What you said is true. Right. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And, and let's just hold off there. Um, and we talked last week about this, that I perceive that you're a prophet. I mean, he does peer into her life in a way that he wouldn't have known. Right? So that's the bare, simple meaning of it. And, and we're not, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and that comes up uh, later on in, oh, I don't remember which verse, 434 or so. comes up later. Where she, when she witnesses to the Samaritan, uh, the Samaritans, uh, she tells them that he knew about me. All right, so, so that's true too. Um, but I was suggesting that this idea of a prophet is a bigger idea for her, even that it's not just knowing her past, um, but it's the one who's come to speak God's word to her, but also um, to direct her to the place of worship, and that's right where she goes. Right, because the very next sentence, verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, um, presumably it's Gerizim, which is where she is, but you say that it is in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. So, okay, so we're talking living water, then husband, and now go to which mountain do we worship on? And does it seem like they're changing subjects really rapidly? 
No, it does to me, I, whether it does to you or not. Um, and I, what I was trying to explain last week is there's a reason for this. Finally, verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ or called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's I'm not a big fan of that translation. I would prefer you say, um, I am the one who is speaking to you, as you see at the bottom of last week's sheet. That <laughs> um, he's, I mean, they're talking about who is a prophet, where's the place of worship, the source of living water. They're going to talk about food here in a minute too, or John is. This is all language of Moses in the wilderness. This is all language of Abraham and the visitation of Abraham. This is God visiting his people. Namely, God, I am. That, that's why I say that translation in 26. is. I would have gone with the divine name here and saying this is the first place in John's gospel where Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. Uh, I think a week or two ago we were talking about the northern kingdom had hmm. two capitals or two places of worship. Yeah, Bethel and then Gerizim is the other one, yeah. Shiloh, and Shiloh is another one. They, okay, so in the northern part, I did some work on this at the seminary. In the northern regions, especially the pagan areas of like Tyre and Sidon, um, I don't know if I can pull up a map quick. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have this, actually, and now I have to actually figure out how to use it. Um, I'll talk to you while I'm looking. Well, Tyre and Sidon are on the Mediterranean. Correct. So that's Tyre and Sidon um, are in the Mediterranean. That's north of Samaria. But there's actually... Um, Atlas. Oh, does that mean I have to pay for it? I haven't paid for it. Ah, that's too bad. All right. Um, so I can't pull it up quickly. That's fine. I'm using like three. I'm using the new software, but I have a license from like three generations back, so I don't have all the things that are in the new version. They they disable the new things because I'm not paying for the upgrade. Anyway, um, so just imagine with me, you know, tired side and. Galilee, Samaria, Israel, or Judah, right? And so just north of Samaria and extending into Samaria is a mountain range that runs all the way from the Mediterranean through, through the south part of Galilee into Samaria. And um, all of those, on all of those mountains, they even have this arche- uh, archaeologically today, they find, they find altars on top of those mountains. Um, that was, you can read, the, it happens all the time in the Old Testament, that they worship, you hear about them worshiping in the high places. And it, I mean, it, it's intuitive, right? You want to get closer to God, where do you go? Yeah, you go up higher. Or you build a tower, right? Yeah, Babel, to reach to the heavens, right? So, um, Sears Tower, or what is it, Willis Tower? It's such a stupid name. Willis, who's Willis? Nobody knows Willis, everybody knows Sears, even though Sears is pretty much dead, although it looks like they're going to reopen again. I don't know. Apparently that's why you do bankruptcy. So that you have to sell everything so that you can buy it all back again at a cheaper price. Alright, so um, so places of worship. So you're right, Ron. But they did have some principal places. But it was one of the things that the Samaritans were um, 
notorious for is that they would take and assimilate. You see this especially with the northern uh, kingdom, that they would marry foreign wives. I think the most notorious is Ahab with Jezebel, right? Jezebel comes in. She's from Sidon, I think, or was it Tyre? One of the two places. Oh, yeah. Um, she's the daughter of, of, of um, Sidon. So uh, she brings all of her false worship. And then what do they do? Ahab just kind of blends it together. We call that syncretism. Have you heard that term before? Syncretism. Um, we still have that in some places. You'll see this, especially with Roman Catholicism. They did this in the New World. So you have like Catholicism mixed with voodoo in the Caribbean. I'm like, that's kind of weird. You go to, you have all these fertility cults in, in Mexico. And so then they just kind of blended it and they have this thing called, the, you know, they have a, a special revelation of Mary called the Our Lady of Guadalupe. She's the one that's on all the candles. <laughs> it's just the beating heart and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so they try to blend or assimilate like false religion with true religion and just say, well, you were worshiping this way, but now you should worship. You can worship the same way, but now you just understand it differently, which mm, isn't so helpful. Good question, Ron. And this place of worship is really important, right? On which mountain, right? So, so is it going to be Gerizim or is it going to be Jerusalem? And I think I told you a couple weeks ago that there was an argument as to which place was actually um, Sinai. So, which archaeologically doesn't really work. I mean, it's like, wait a minute. They went from Egypt all the way up to Samaria, whatever it was. In. They went through Cana for Sinai. Then they came. No. It doesn't really work out. Uh, no, that's not what I said. I'm confused. There wasn't an argument whether where Sinai was. It was an argument as to where Moriah was. I'm sorry, I got the mountains confused. There's so many mountains, right? Moriah, the place of sacrifice of Isaac, where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, but then the Lord um, gave the substitute, the ram. So, um, yeah, that was the argument. Now look at the... Well, let me say one more thing before we look at the sheep. So the question last week was about, um, are, we, are we kind of doing violence to the text by saying, everything that we're reading here happened. This is a true story. This is a conversation Jesus was happening, uh, having. Um, but it wasn't just a bare conversation about what? Water and worship and just kind of a... And they were just changing subject rapidly. and These things aren't connected. Um, but I've, argument I've been trying to make for you for the last couple of weeks, and actually it really goes all the way back to the beginning of John, uh, John 1, is that John is preaching history. I mean, let's say it that way. So he's, he's telling a story, but he's telling the story for the benefit of faith that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is his purpose statement. But the problem here in chapter 4, which we don't actually see back in like chapter 3 and especially chapter 1, is that earlier John, and I think that was the problem with your nephew, is that he hadn't been with us, that earlier in the gospel, John himself would do this. Remember, he would go aside and and then give us a little explanation as to what just happened. Um, Should I find an example? Sorry if it's scrolling too fast on the screen. You're just going to have to live with it. Is, it. is it really nauseous? Nauseating, I should say. Just don't look. Okay. Um, yeah, where's one of these anecdotes from John? That's what I'm looking it's for. It's after, there's one after Mary's Here, words of the gospel. 
Well, he, yeah, that's true. But here in John, uh, John 32, all right, so Jesus saw him. Um, John, or John saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, you know, there's the rest of John's quote. And then verse 32, notice what happens. It goes into another... Uh, no, that's not the one. I'm sorry. Hold on, hold on. Well, really here. Okay, yeah. So if you look at that paragraph starting with verse 14, the word became flesh, etc., and then verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he is for me. And then this is not history, right? For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I mean, that is a, that's a theological exposition or pre, that's preaching about what, has just, what he's just been talking about in this prologue. Does that make sense? So he, John, steps, John the Evangelist steps back and kind of gives us some interpretation. He did, this, uh, he did this with the wedding at Cana. You remember how he did it there? Let's see if I can find it quick. Okay, verse 6. Uh, so do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding uh, 20 or 30 gallons. It's a little... F- thing, but he, but he throws in for the Jewish rites of purification. Okay? He just gives us these little notes that really aren't he doesn't even talk about, like he doesn't even explain why why did you give us that note? Why did you tell us that? And, and what I'm suggesting um, that he's doing is John is telling us enough of the story to trigger memories, especially for, for those who know the Old Testament well. We're going to hear phrases and expressions and be a Oh, I know what you're talking about. There's a passage, I don't know, I don't remember exactly where it's found. It says, these things were written that he may believe. Yeah, that's John's purpose statement, and it's in 19... John or the letters? No, it's in the Gospel of John. He's got really two purpose statements. One's in chapter 19, one's in chapter 20. And it's the same thing. Like, I'm not telling you this story just to tell you a nice story. Cassie and I were talking about this. I talked to my mom about it too because she was a librarian. I'm like, when you read a story to people, did you just read the story to them and say, okay, their story's ended. Okay, now what? No, it didn't matter if it was fiction or if it was a true story. The, the story had a point, right? And then you want to talk about the story and like, what did you learn from the story or the characters in the story? That's, that's why we tell stories. Maybe as a lesson uh, or as a warning um, or as a guide. And you remember last week I talked about the kind of fourfold means of interpretation in the, from the medieval. And uh, we, these are all fine. There's analogy. Do you remember these? Mm-hmm. Allegory. And then I said there's a moral sometimes. And then there's literal. Those were the fourfold. Now, in the medieval period of Luther's time, they, they said every text has all four meanings. So you can, you can take something and you can take it literally, you can find a moral in it, you can see an allegory, that means like an object lesson, I guess is what we, no, that's not an analogy's object lesson, allegory, what's that? It's, it's telling you about something else, whereas analogy is, um, I don't know, how do you distinguish those two? I'm not explaining very well. Allegory is like a parable. Yeah, right? it's more like a story with like some news and Yes, yeah. 
So they usually, they would, this would be drawn to the church, this would be drawn to life, so would moral, life, you know, and then literal is just what we might just call history. Sorry, my age just looked like used. It never bothered to me, but it bothers other people. I don't even know what that is. Where would the prophetic fit in there? Prophetic? Yeah, it doesn't. But a prophetic writing, so this this is how you interpret. But then, huh, then there's also genre. And I think that may have been part of what was going on last week, is that there's different genres, right? There's prophetic, there's wisdom. Poetic. Yeah, poetic, good. Historical. Yeah, historical. Uh, forgetting something. Oh, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Ooh. I always like I watch post. I love post-apocalyptic movies. Oh man, anybody seen Interstellar? I don't. I don't the critics didn't really like it that much, but it just devastates me every time. I've seen it a couple of times. I it just. It's a movie. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's powerful, but. Is that the one with the dimension? Mm-hmm. Fifth dimension, yeah. Um, yeah, it's sci-fi, so. Mm-hmm. But it's, but it actually has a lot of yeah this kind of aspect to it. So here, where's the problem? Liter- you can interpret things literal, literally. His historical or history is a genre. But I'll give you an example here. Um, if you read, say, First and Second Kings which is a history. And then you read First and Second Chronicles, which is the same history. It begs the question, why do we have the same history written twice? Uh, what's another one, the famous one at the beginning? The book's name actually means giving the law again, telling the story again. You know what book I'm talking about? No, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. It literally means the giving of the law a second time. But it's not giving it a second time. It's just telling the same story again. Like, why do we have Deuteronomy when we already had it in Exodus? What's the answer? To go into more detail. Okay. In some cases, that's true. This is really evident with 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's either a different genre or interpretation. It's a different genre. They're both telling history, but they're telling it with a very different purpose. Yeah. Yeah, so if you read the Kings, it, sound, it reads like history. When you read Chronicles, it reads like a sermon about history. Yeah, He's making, he makes theological um, assertions. He condenses history in some places. It's <laughs> where it's like, well, um, this king came along, and he was good for a few years, then he sinned, he married a foreign wife, and then they fell into, fell into unbelief, and then God sent judges, or they, he sent some you know, foreign king to conquer him, and then they repented, and then he restored the nation, and then there was a king, and he'll do this like, you're like, that's not, no, give me more detail, I want history, and he's saying, um, actually, I'm going to condense this history just to show you that they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over, um, which is the definition of idiocy, right, of being an idiot. It's like when you keep making the same mistakes over and over. But collectively, as a nation, they're idiots. Is the point. All right. So why did I bring this up? I, when we were, the question last week is: Can you can you should you only read this as literal history? 
And I don't think the woman does. I think she understands Jesus' own words as meaning more than what he's simply saying. Does that make sense? So what do we call that? We call it the subtext, right? You ever have that kind of conversation where somebody's talking to you, but you know, this happens to me all the time as a pastor, so sorry if that spoiled it for you. But people come and they tell me one thing and they really are, want to talk about something completely different, but, but they're using the other thing to kind of hide what the real conversation's about. And so that, I mean, part of being a pastor is, is listening to that and then asking questions so that they dig a little bit deeper. Psychologists do that too, but um, until we get to actually the root problem, which is the way it usually works out is people come talking about other people and they keep talking about other people and eventually figure out that the problem actually is not other people, but it's actually the person talking, that they're the one who has a problem that they need to deal with. Does that make sense? So there's subtext, right? And there's, um, there's layers of meaning. And I just, it seems to me that every human interaction has this kind of, like, there, there's hmm, layers of meaning. That's one way to say it. What do you want to say? That we don't ever just, we're very, very rarely just come out and say something and directly. An example of that too is yeah. Just this morning, I was at Time of Grace. Mm-hmm. He was talking about do not judge. Mm. He says very often when someone is judging someone else, it's because they're guilty of the same, oh. same thing. Absolutely. Well, Jesus himself says that. Why are you talking about your neighbor's, the speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got a log jam, a plank in your eye? You see? That was the text. Yeah. And, and it's also a little inside baseball, but whatever sins you hear pastors preach about in the pulpit are usually the ones they struggle with themselves. Yeah. So if they exclude certain sins from the conversation, it may mean they don't know it or it may mean they're trying to hide it from you. So... Um, be careful about that. Does he preach all the commands or does he leave out a couple of them? You know? um, and some of that's not intentional. It's just, a, I think it's a subconscious thing. But yeah, so there's subtext, there's levels of meaning. And remember, Jesus, I mean, Jesus has already established this at the beginning when they're talking about the water. That she wants him, she, she thinks he's talking literally about water that will, that will just never be thirsty physically. And he's been trying to take her to think much bigger. Does that make sense? I mean, he, that's what he's doing. Uh, and John's doing the same with his, with his gospel, I would argue. So, I don't, that's a, I, I don't... I think it was a good question. I just don't... Um, I, I can't actually, one, understand about how Jesus is jumping from topic to topic unless, unless they actually are connected. And maybe that's what we need to do next. Well, why did she bring up about worship in the first place? All right, well, let's look at it. Thanks, Ron. Um, if you've had last week's sheet, which will continue this week, I did prepare one for today, but I'm highly doubtful we'll even look at it. But I'll be ready for next week then. Uh, I wrote right here, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, the woman shifts quickly to worship and sacred space. Her sin has been exposed by a prophet. And the prophet's job is to point to the place of forgiveness. Hence her question about the place of worship. If you read, I mean, Old Testament prophets are not just telling about the future. It's showing people their sin according to God's law and then pointing them to the place of forgiveness where where God has appointed to forgive or how he's appointed to forgive. That's why she asks about the place of worship. She's asking where is their forgiveness? Because it matters. 
I mean, Jesus as prophet has exposed uh, her sin. You've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't yours. Um, Whatever that means. So the central role of the prophet is the condemnation of false worship or idolatry, which the prophets depict as adultery. All right, that's the husband question. And uh, maybe that's where we need to talk about. And then we'll look, so we'll look at some of these verses in a minute. Thus, the five husbands could be a reference to the five heathen nations who with their gods have been displaced and settled in Samaria. Now I said could, maybe, perhaps, and I think that's what the hiccup was with your nephew. All right. What's his name? I forget now. Hmm? Your nephew. The pastor? No, that was here last week and the week oh, before. Mike. Mike, okay. I think that was the hang-up, was this idea that when he says she has five husbands, we're not to take... I think he heard me as saying we're not to take that literally. I think we are, but it's actually a... Um, but <laughs> this is how Jesus uses our lives. He uses our lives as witness to his, for his purpose. Uh, another example of this that I thought of this morning is in Luke's gospel, there's this, it's only in Luke's gospel, there's the sending of the 70 or the 72. You know about this? It's in Luke 12, I think. Right? So they send, Jesus sends out 70 or 72, and you're just like, why 70 or 72? The, the manuscripts disagree as to how many. Why 72? That seems like kind of an arbitrary number, and it's not at all, um, because of? Six times 12. Six times, okay, so you got the math. Now, when, when is there six times 12? 12 tribes, right? And then if each tribe sends six representatives, this is the elders on the mountain of Sinai. They each send six elders from each of the 12 tribes. Yeah. Isn't that something? You're like, oh. Oh, so it's not, it's not just an arbitrary 72 number. Where, where was that? Luke 12. Oh, it's, uh, as far as the elders? Yeah. Yeah. Oof, I don't have reference. It's an exodus. Although it might be Deuteronomy. So it's kind of a... I'm sure if you have a study Bible, they should link to it. <laughs> they might not, though. <laughs> um, sometimes numbers are distracting, though, like in John with the fish, <laughs> and they catch 153 fish or something. <laughs> you can't imagine how much theological writing has been made about how, what is 153 fish, and what does that represent? Because it seems just like so like arbitrary almost, because there's no... And there's people who do some math, funky math with that. Um, so there's limits to this sort of conversation too. So that's why I said he could be the five nations, which is known from Samaria, and you can read in Second Kings. Um, but let's look at uh, Hosea, Hosea, which I'll put up on the screen if I can get there quick. Hosea two verse sixteen. Hosea's minor prophet, so that you know. Look at the time of Isaiah, though major prophet. So um, it's going to be in those pack of books towards the end of the Old Testament. <laughs> First of the last 12 books. First of the last 12. There you go. Yeah. And in that day, what day? I should probably back up a little bit. Context, right? Chapter? Uh, chapter 2. Now, uh, Cassie and I were talking about this. The whole book of Hosea, I think, is a literal story about an actual prophet who was married to a prostitute by God's command. Um, but then God gives us that story, gives us his life then as an analogy or allegory. I think I want to read it for his relationship to us as his church. 
because that's the way the New Testament understands it. Anyway, therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Ooh. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by no name or by name no more. So, so we you see um, here in the prophet how this marriage image is is on top of faithfulness to God. Okay, puts the two together, and actually it's the whole book, so you can read the book. Um, but I just want to give you that example. Well. When Jesus says, you've had five husbands, but the one you have now is not your husband. I argue that, I mean, it's possible he's referring to some guy he, that she's living with. Um, but I argue that he's actually referring to himself. The one you have now is not yet your husband. See? Because of this kind of language. And I think she, I think she gets it. But that's an argument that you could disagree with me about. How about, oh, 19 and 20? Wasn't the uh, wife of Amos, uh, Hosea, supposed to represent Israel? Yeah, that's what I'm I'm suggesting. Well, but does that mean it didn't actually happen? No. But why does he give us the story? As a, what do we, you see this all the time. We do this with actually analogies, or not analogies. Well, there'll be like a little example, but it illustrates a much bigger example. Right, so think about, like if you wanted to talk about Um, if you wanted to talk about like the relationship of the North and the South in the Civil War, who could you talk about? Actually, um, who's the famous historian that was in the, the um, Ken Burns documentary? Oh, I just had it. Shelby Foote. You know Shelby Foote? Shelby Foote does this all the time. He'll have a letter from a brother and a brother, and they're fighting on both sides of the war. Right? And you can look at just those, look at that family and the way that family was split across Mason-Dixon, right? And, and actually learn about the whole war in a lot of ways. Just the, the nature of the conflict. All right? Just by looking at that one family, you could see kind of the bigger picture. Does that make sense? So looking at Hosea and his wife, you could actually see kind of the whole history of Israel and God's redeeming his people. Yeah, you're right, Ron. Uh, also 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. Those are the terms of his marriage to, a, to the bride. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Right? And, and knowing there, of course, is in the biblical sense, both of marriage but also in that intimate knowledge of God. Right? Which those two things are actually, it's the same word, so it means the same thing. To know God as intimately as you would know your wife or, or husband. All right. Then I say also look at Jeremiah 2. So we can jump there. That one's a little bit easier to find, right? It's got more pages. Before you, I think before you got here, Cassie was talking about um, making the kids use their Bibles, their book. Um, I, it's fine. Use a table of contents. Um, do they, I don't know, I haven't asked, do they learn the books of the Bible like with a song or something? Do we have that as part, yes, part of the curriculum somewhere? I know I did, third grade. 
I learned a song in third grade. I remember it. Yeah, anyway, for both New Testament and Old Testament. But you can use a table of contents. That's fine, too. Jeremiah 2, uh, 13. Oh, we should probably back up a little bit. Again, context. All right. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are, there, they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. They've exchanged what God has given them for something far inferior. All right. What chapter? Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. The references are right here in this paragraph if you need it. <clears throat> for my people have committed two evils. <coughs> They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns from themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See how that works? So God has promised in giving them living waters, and they've forsaken that, and they've done what? They've, they've dug their cisterns, which, I mean, these kids don't know what cisterns are. What's a cistern? Anybody know? It's a room in the basement. It's walled in for water. Yeah, so just ground. Um, you get below the water table so that there's just. No, it's, it's for rainwater catching. Rain. Oh, is it rainwater? So it's a place to hold rainwater. Hmm. It now, something one of my dad's farmhouse. Oh, really? Yeah, but I never wanted to look back there because I was the back there. Yeah, you wouldn't drink it though. No. Right? So that's the distinction that's being made here. And not only that, they're, some, they're replacing his fountains of living water with broken cisterns. They're not even good ones. <laughs> not, they can't even hold water anyway. Which is God's way of saying, you know, you people, you're kind of absurd. Why would you do that? You know, you have this and you'll give that up for, for something broken and that doesn't even work. You know, um, like I said, I like how one of my pastor friends says that sin makes us stupid. Um, which get, he says it all the time, so it gets a little bit trite or uh, cliche, but still. This is verse chapter 3, verse 6. And again, this is, so we have living water. What did we have before? Um, with Hosea, we had um, marriage. And now we have here, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? The faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill, that's what we were talking about, right? And under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, well, after she had done all this, she will return to me. Like it was just a fling or something, right? One night stand or whatever you want to say. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Okay, so Israel being which kingdom? Northern. Northern, right. And then Judah being the southern. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw uh, that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, and I had sent her away with a decree of di- divorce. Isn't that something? Okay. Yet her tre- treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. <laughs> she polluted the land, committed, committing adultery with stone and tree, which is just like... Like they were worshiping trees and rocks and it's crazy, crazy stuff. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Ooh. And what's pretense? These guys just got on like midnight last night, so 
They're dragging. I can outward tell. Appearance. Yeah, outward appearance, right? So that this is the whole Samaritan and Jew thing. The Samaritans are pretty just pretty much open about their idolatry. <laughs> okay, they're just out in the open. Everybody knows about it. But the Jews, especially Pharisees, it's all, like I said, it's all double speak. They, they, they appear very religious. And what does Jesus say about them? You know, your whitewashed tombs. Um, uh, you'll hear today in the gospel, you're, you're lawless. Even though you do, law, do the law, you're lawless. Yeah. He actually calls them worse than people who I know. don't know their laws. Yeah. Why? Because hypocrisy is, is deceitful, right? I mean, and it leads others astray. Right? And that's, you know, we talk about false, false prophets in sheep's clothing, which is our gospel text today. That's actually what it looks like. Is everything looks really great, and underneath they're just they're devouring widows in their homes, as Jesus says. Not today, but elsewhere. So, it, so it's under a pretense of doing God's work, right? And so that this is Jesus' diagnosis for you today is to not just assume because somebody says they're Christian or that they use the name of Jesus that what they're saying is true and right and good for you. But that doesn't that doesn't mean he hasn't left you with the tools to actually do it. Which again, getting ahead of myself. Just wait a few minutes for that. <laughs> You'll hear it in a bit. Um, how far did I say to go? Tell Adam, yeah. All right. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. Which is precisely what Jesus is doing. He, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, but he goes to Samaria, Samaria and they receive him. They hear his word. They believe in him. Which is, if that's not an indictment of the religious people and of Israel. I mean, where does he get murdered? He doesn't get murdered in Samaria. He gets murdered in, in his own home, basically in his, among his own people in Judah, at Jerusalem. So, so this whole like Samaritan, like they're the worst of the worst. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the trailer park, to use a modern analogy, um, you know, and, and like, well, I'm not good. I'm, I'm too good for the trailer park. And then you talk to folks that live in, you know, less than ideal housing, and they're actually very honest and, op- uh, you know, open people. And they'll tell you what their problem is and how, you know, how the house burnt or whatever it was that they had, you know, they couldn't uh, or, they, or their job doesn't afford them uh, better, better housing. Right, so so it's the way of like we'll put a judge, you know, those of us who live in a single-family home or something can place judgment upon those who have something what we perceive as inferior, um, without even asking the story, and then just you know, just setting up a well, we're better than you kind of thing. Whereas here with Jeremiah, it's like yeah, you're kind of deceiving yourself because you're with that level of deceit where you're not honest. Um, that means that Israel is better than Judah because at least Israel acknowledges her. Bad behavior, as they say. So again, as I said last time, look at Second Kings 17. You can see these five husbands maybe being the five kings. Yeah, like I said, you don't have to make a lot of that. But the woman does connect, again, living waters, which we saw in the second reading. Um, she connects husbandry or, or, or marriage, as we saw this, Jeremiah and in Hosea. She connects place of worship also. All right, so that's probably where we should go next. Um, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see that right there? All right, so let's talk about that. 
A few features distinguish this section. To worship, or the verb or the noun, occurs nine times. All right, so maybe we should go back to John 4, put it back up on the screen. All right, John 4, 20. All right, there's, there's worship, worship, worship. I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And I, and, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. All right. To worship the Father. In verse 21, 22, you worship, but you do not know. We worship what we do not know, or what we know, excuse me. And now true worshipers who will worship the Father, uh, in the end of that one, such people to worship Him, God is fair, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay? So, you know, if somebody says a word, like, keeps using the same word over and over and over, what's that? That should get your attention, right? It's like either he's being utterly repetitive. Because, like, like, when I write a sermon, I, like, look for, I at least look for, like, in the thesaurus. If I keep, well, even my, uh, my I use Grammarly, you know? And it's just a grammar check or thing. And it'll say, oh, you've used this word a bunch. Do you really mean to do that? <laughs> you know, maybe word choice would be, you know, just keep it interesting, that kind of thing. All right. So the word here is proskaneo. And uh, I don't know if you've heard, do you, know, do you know what worship literally means? There's two words for worship in the Greek. So there's actually two. Maybe I can both them. Something about worth. Yeah, well, that's the English. And it's a stupid English word. So that doesn't actually say anything about what, is, what it actually means, which is unfortunate. This happens sometimes. We have words that come to mean something very different than what they were originally meant for. <laughs> All right. So we say worship. There's actually two words in Greek that, that um, no, I'll write it out in English. Sorry. You know, you're, not, you're not into Greek letters, are you? All right. P-R-O. Ne. Ne. I don't know how to do that. Ne. Oh, okay. Pos. No, oh, that's supposed to be you. Oh, all right. That's kind of phonetically right. That means to actually, to prostrate. That's where we get prostrate, which is, I think, the Latin cognate. So literally to fall down on one's face, right? So you hear that, you see this in the Bible. People come up to him and they, they, they go face to his, they put their face on, on his feet or they, or they kneel or what's the other expression? They go face down in some way, right? And that, that's a worship word. So like, like when I, when we sing the Benita, you say, come, let us worship him, let us bow down and kneel before our maker, you know, the song. Um, I actually bow there, because that's actually what the text is saying to do. I was like, kind of interesting. You know, I don't do a full bow, and I don't go down on my face, prostrate, um, because I don't know if I could get back up again. <laughs> the rest of it. But there's also another word, um, la from which we get liturgy. Alright, so this is face plant worship. Okay. Well, and here, so here this is the word. It's the face plant worship. To like literally go down on one's knees or down on face to the ground. The kind of worship. Uh, who, who actually prays that way? Uh, Muslims do, right? With the prayer mouths. And I know we kind of mock them for all their prayers, but um, you know, it's a religion of the law, and they and they do the, they do that part of it really well. I mean, they they show reverence. Why why would going down in one's face? Um, why would that be a sign of worship? Like, say before a king, 
could also be submission because it is submission. Your neck is exposed. Yeah, yeah. So Ethan's got it because you probably heard me say this before. Good way to remember things. It's good. I probably said it more than once. Um, yeah, if you if you go face down, um, you're at their mercy, right? Because they, like he says, your neck's exposed. You you have no defense, right? So it is a sign of submission. But worship is submission. You're sub- you're putting yourself under the one whom you worship. Make sense? Um, problem with worship is that usually what it is is we think of it as something that we do for God, but rather what you see um, everywhere is that you is that you're actually under God. You're brought under Him. He actually brings you to worship, like He does with the woman. He calls her out of Samaria uh, to Him. All right, so worship's all over the place. Uh, but also notice the other expression that's there. Um, the hour, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. Um, those, those are important words in John's gospel. I, is this the first place he said? Oh, no, he said it back at the wedding at Cana, right? My hour has not yet come, he says to his mother. Okay. So this is a really important idea in John's gospel. When is the hour? It's death. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and he says as much um, as he's praying with the disciples in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. Yeah. My hour has come. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified, I think is how it goes. And then, but notice what he says here, which is really helpful, 23, and is now here. My hour is coming, his death, and is now here. I am here, the one who will die for you, when true worships, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, now, okay, so we've had husbands, we've had living water, we've had place of worship, and now we have talking about the Father. Now, we've had the Father in John's Gospel. She hasn't heard any of that, but we have. Back in, in the prologue in chapter 1. Remember? Yeah full of grace and truth. So here we have it. In, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. How does he seek people to worship him? How do you worship the Father in spirit and truth? I mean, that it seems kind of, what do you want to say, abstract. But how does the Father do it? How does he bring people? By accepting his... Uh... Yeah, I don't use that language at all. But yeah, he sends messengers. Um, he sends an invitation. And he keeps sending the invitation, and he actually sends with the invitation um, the acceptance. <laughs> that is a cha- the change of heart. He changes your heart. Yeah, that's a pro- I don't like super active language when it comes to faith. Um, and I, the uh, catechism, Lutheran confessions too, are, are yeah, and even trust can be understood as. Um, as just open ears, open hands, or it can be understood as I trust you, like I've worked this up, right? But trust is, we know this, trust is, is established by the one whom you trust. You don't, you can't force yourself to trust somebody. You could try. Basically what you're saying is I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold out judgment and see if what you say is actually true. But you don't come to trust them until it's actually demonstrated to you. Right? This is why like, when parents break trust with their kids, have I ever done that? Yeah. 
Don't give any examples out loud, please. You can tell me later. I'll repent. Um, it takes a lot of positive reinforcement before they, they'll trust you again. You know? Um, you see this in, like, uh, marriages, right? I mean, if, if, if there's any kind of abuse, uh, but especially, like, physical abuse, you know, if one or the other hits the other, if there's physical abuse that way, I mean, today, probably, it's, I don't know, majority cases, it's going to be divorce, I, I, I guess. All right? Because how can you trust somebody who, once they've done that? That's pretty hard, right? I mean, maybe if they seek help, and I don't know what kind of help you can get. I don't have any personal experience with that, but you get the, you, you can see, I mean, when trust is broken, um, for us, it's, it's almost, well, it's very challenging to restore, ever, right? Because we hold those things, um, not necessarily against people, but, but in a sense of a scar, right? Even if we forgive, it's still, we still feel it. So, hmm, trust. Oh, the hour of Jesus' cross bears with itself the future worship of all united with him. Right? So how does Jesus draw all men to himself? Through his suffering and death. Right? Now, that isn't to say that there are, are Christians who say that Jesus draws people by some other means. Um, I try to come up with ideas. You know, can through, well, the things that Jesus attributes to false prophets today. Actually, great examples. Look, we were casting out demons in your name. He's like, that's not where I want, that's not how I draw people to me. Well, you know, we were doing great signs and wonders in your name. Mm, that's not actually how I draw people to my, into you know, a, a trusting faith relationship with, with me. Well, they, you, you, they spoke incredible words. Mm, that's also not what draws people to me. Um, our losing confessions are, are straight up clear on this one. They say, and, and this is what's going to be in the sermon today, the thing that draws people to Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. Because without forgiveness of sins, there is no trust. You can't trust somebody who says, I might forgive your sins. Do you want to play that game? If you do this, I'll forgive you. Because the rules keep changing, right? That's how we do it. You know, the standards get higher and higher. However, that works. That's not how it works. All right. Now, what were we talking about? We were talking about spirit and truth, worship. <coughs> worship is a big deal. And there are two different kinds of worship, which we've talked at length about. Samaria and um, the Jews, Judea. Indicated by the we worship what we know. See that in verse 22? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we knew. No. Jesus is from born in Bethlehem. He's from Judea. His house is anyway, although he lived in Galilee. Grew up in Galilee. Uh, We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But that's not the end of the story. So there's a huge but there. But the hour is coming and is now here. Actually, when what? We'll worship together again. And it's not going to be in Samaria. It's not going to be in Jerusalem. Where is it going to be? It's a, it's a trick question. What? At the cross. Yeah, it's Jesus. <laughs> right. Where is worship? It's where Jesus is. Where, where is true worship? Where Jesus is. Namely, with his cross. That's right. So um, Jesus ignores the argument because he's the new place of worship in spirit and truth. And I ask you the question, how is it that you're to worship the Father in spirit and truth? How is the Father seeking people? Through his Son. It's always through his Son. You can't know, Jesus himself says in John's Gospel, you can't know the Father apart from the Son. And 
no one, that's the only way to know God as Father is by His Son. Make sense? You know, otherwise, why would you call Him Father if He had no child? <laughs> um, of course, you're His child now too in Jesus. I think that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, uh, if, she's she's devastated by this because she takes off and has to go tell other people about it. Not devastated in the sense of like I'm terrified, but devastated as in like. Yeah, excited. Not only did he know about my five husband thing, you know, but but he's he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's come to restore the nations, to bring all people together again in true worship of God. That's what the Messiah does. Um, I know the Messiah is coming. Verse 25, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I who speak to you am he. And then we'll see later when she comes back. Well, she says it right here. Uh, disciples came back and Marvel was talking to a woman. Yes, verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Uh, she's not super, super confident. It is the Christ, but she's pretty close. She's there. She's like, mm, I think he is. I think he is. All right. So look at this next paragraph. Oh, no, we're already over. I didn't even finish it in two weeks. Ah. Uh, all right, well, let's be done with it. So um, this paragraph right here uh, ties everything together, but you're going to have to go read Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, Joel. We'll do it again next week, though. Um, and then look forward to chapter 7 and chapter 19. Okay, And you'll see how it's all just... This is all of one fabric. And God's relating to his people through his son. He just, he's just using multiple allegories, pictures. Okay? All right, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have joined us to your Son through our baptism, that we would see him as our Savior, and that we'd receive from him everything that you have promised, uh, living waters, bread from heaven, and eternal life. We ask that uh, you would keep us with your Son, Jesus, today and always. In his holy name, amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.